And uh, there's a great story uh, right at the very end of Jesus' life in uh, John chapter 12. So if you have a Bible, flip to it. We'll put these verses up on the screen. And uh, this is right before Jesus is entering into his passion, his suffering, the cross. And uh, there's some Greeks uh, who come and have a request for Jesus. And this is the story, starting in chapter 12, uh, start at verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was a disciple. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Okay, Greeks have broken into Jerusalem area, uh, which is not completely unheard of, but it's an amazing thing that the Greeks had heard of the man Uh, They had heard of what this man Jesus was doing, and they came to Jesus with a request of, we want to see Jesus. So Philip tells Andrew, Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus, and this is Jesus' response uh, to the Greeks. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Read that one more time because Jesus introduces us to a paradox. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Let me pray, and I'm going to walk through very, very briefly um, and unpack this paradox uh, uh, that Jesus presents in these few verses. So, Father God, we give thanks for what has already taken place uh, in our midst this morning. Uh, But, God, we know that you're not done with us, and we ask, God, that uh, you would speak. I give thanks, God, that you know every single person that's here in this room today. You know our heart condition as we relate to you. God, you know where our soul is as we relate to you. God, I just give thanks that you know us through and through. So, God, would you speak? Uh, God, to those who just need encouragement today, would you bring encouragement? To those who need to be convicted, God, just bring conviction. God, open our our minds, open our hearts to understand and to receive what you would have for us in this place uh, today. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, a lot could be said about this passage, so I'm not going to attempt to even cover everything or unpack everything, but I wanted to focus really just on one question, and the question uh, is simply this. How can we live life as those who've actually found life? Jesus presents to us this paradox, and the paradox is simply this. If you love your life in this world, you will actually lose, and this word lose also can be translated as destroy. So if you love your life here and now, the path where that leads is actually to losing or destroying your very life. I've seen this, and I'm sure you've been witness uh, to this as well. People who chase after every single pleasure that they could think of pursuing what ultimately they think will give them you know, purpose and meaning and significance and that will fill them only to get to the end of the pursuit and realize what they were pursuing actually led to their destruction. 
The other side of the paradox is if you hate your life in this world, I want to be clear, Jesus is not talking about hate where you're constantly thinking suicidal thoughts or you just have this utter contempt for yourself. Rather, what Jesus is speaking of is you're not the center of your world. You're not the center of your life. To hate your life is not to have yourself literally sitting on the throne, as it were. That there's someone else who is on that throne and his name is Jesus. So the paradox is simply those who lose actually win, where those who win in the eyes of the world actually lose. So my question, I'm going to answer this very quickly in three different ways of how can we live as those who have found life? Another way to say it is, practically speaking, what does it look like to live a life found or a life kept? I don't know about you, but I don't want to live my life only to get to the end and realize, wow, I was only walking closer and closer towards losing it all or towards my destruction. If losing it now means that I gain later, that's the kind of life I want to live. And I would hope that we as a community, we have a choice of what kind of life do we want to live, and Jesus gives us two options. If you love your life, it will be lost. But if you hate your life, and again, not contempt, not suicidal, it's not what we're talking about, but if you hate your life in this world, your life will be found, your life will be kept. So three things of what it looks like to live a found life or a kept life. And number one is this, it's a life who's constantly looking to Jesus. If you want to live life found, live life kept, as it were, as Jesus says, You will be the man or the woman who looks to Jesus for life. Jesus says, I'll read again in chapter 12, verse 24, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Verse 25, the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Simple principle here. If you are not looking to Jesus for life, you have no life. Now, some of you might, so you're saying, if I don't have a relationship with Jesus, I don't have life. I'm not saying that. That's what the Bible teaches. There is only one way that we can have life found, life kept, life eternal, and it's if I am looking to Jesus. The Bible makes very clear all of us sin. We're sinners and sinners sin. The Bible makes clear that the consequences of sin is death, is separation from God, eternal separation from God. But the beautiful message of the gospel is that those who look to Jesus for life find life. This is what Paul actually says in Ephesians chapter 2, and I love this verse. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. And when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. When I was absolutely lost, when I was dead, Jesus made me alive. So those who look to Jesus for life, find life. It's a pretty simple principle, but yet I find that many are looking to anywhere and anything and everyone else but Jesus to find life, to find meaning and purpose and significance and value and worth. Jesus says, if you hate your life in this world, you'll be the one who finds it or keeps 
life and life eternal. So practically speaking, what does it mean to be that, that man or that woman who lives this side of heaven actually hating, again, not contempt, not suicidal. And I can only say the life, the person who's hating their life in this world is I am not looking to myself for life. I'm only looking to one person. I'm only looking to one place. I'm looking to Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. That's where life is being found. I've already asked this, but maybe this is you and this is where you're at right now, but have you experienced yourself or seen people who are so hungry to find life? They taste, they feel that emptiness, and so they start trying to fill it with anything and everything from relationships and careers and degrees and monies, and you, you fill in the blank. That they chase all of those things only to get to the end of that pursuit, and then they examine their life, and they just see, and the, the result is typically the same. How did I end up like this? Well, you ended up in that place because you chased life where there was no life. What Jesus teaches is that if you want to have a life found, a life kept, both now and for eternity, it is the life that looks to Jesus. Question, if someone were to just watch you for a week, if someone were just to kind of be in your world, a fly on the wall, as it were, watching you, observing you, listening to your conversations, watching how you treat other people, respond, react to other people, at the end of the week, if I were to interview them, anyone were to interview them, what would, the, what would the result of, what would they have observed after one week with you? Would they have looked at your life and say, wow, that man, that woman, they genuinely love their life. They genuinely love themselves. I, I've observed them and my observation is that their life is, it's so about them. Everything in their world, their conversations, everything, it's so focused on them. They genuinely love their life, but yet they seem so miserable. They seem so empty. They seem so confused. They seem so worried. They seem so anxious. Or would the person who had been observing you just for one week, would their conclusion be, wow, they genuinely don't make much of themselves, and yet they seem to be so content, so joyful, so peaceful. As I was thinking through this question, it was one of those questions that gave me pause of, wow, if someone observed me for a week, what would their conclusion be? Does Michael Davis love his life? Is it all about him? Or does Michael Davis, he doesn't make much of himself. He talks a lot about the God who's called him into relationship with him. And he's got a genuine heart to serve and to love and to engage those around him. If you were to live a life found or a life kept, bless you, it starts with looking to Jesus. The second one is in John chapter 12, verse 26. Whoever serves me must follow me. If you would have a life found, a life kept, you are the one who is number one, looking to Jesus, and number two, you are the one who is following Jesus. Now, I think this aspect, even this language of following someone else just goes against everything about us, that there's something in us called sin, I think, that just doesn't want to submit or surrender to following anyone else. 
Why? Because I know what I'm doing. I know where I'm going. I know how I'm going to get there. I don't need someone else telling me what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. I don't need to follow anyone else. But Jesus says, whoever serves me must follow me. I kind of gave up on fighting the aspect of followership a long time ago when I realized where I was leading myself was not really anywhere worthwhile going. And I think for some of us, we could actually get over this hump of having a difficult time following Jesus if you were just to ask yourself the simple question, is where you're leading your life, is it really worthwhile going there? Is it really going to be the place that you really want to end up? I said no to that a long time ago. So the thought of following Jesus for me is a, really, he's rescued me from leading myself astray. If you were to live a life kept, a, left, a, a life found, you look to Jesus. And number two is that you follow Jesus. And the incredible thing about following Jesus, when he invites you to follow him, it's married to, it's coupled to an invitation to live your life on mission. This is when Peter and Andrew first met Jesus in the Sea of Galilee. This is the invitation that he gave to Peter and to his brother Andrew in uh, uh, Matthew chapter 4. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. Because the life of a follower is not just about just following someone aimlessly. It's about following someone into the mission that they've given to you. The mission for these men was simply that you are fishermen. You catch fish, but I have a greater purpose for you and for your life. That greater purpose is that you will fish for the souls of men. The message and the mission that you will be part of will be to rescue men and women from living their life, making it about them and inviting them to make it about God. D.L. Moody, uh, I think I shared this a couple weeks ago, but said it like this, it is the greatest pleasure of living to win souls to Christ. Every time I've read that quote again and again, there's nothing in there that I disagree with. There is nothing greater than being part of and just seeing and witnessing someone's heart just go from hard-hearted towards soft towards God and say, yeah, I'm looking to Jesus and I want to follow Jesus now. There is nothing more pleasurable in this life than seeing a heart awaken to the things of God. So following Jesus means that we are not watching him from afar, that I'm just kind of keeping my eyes on him, but it means I'm actually imitating who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Put it like this. If you're familiar with Facebook, which uh, apparently there's about 700 million people who are, you can be a fan of someone or you can like them, as it were. So for Genesis, you can like or become a fan of Genesis. I recommend you do that. (laughs) But I feel like there are too many Christians who are a fan of Jesus, but they're not following him. They'd click the button of, I like Jesus. I'm actually a fan of Jesus. Well, I'm not really asked to be a fan of Jesus. I was told I was invited to follow him. And there is a, a big difference of being a fan and being a follower. And I just, what does it mean to, to transition from just being a fan of someone, a fan of Jesus, just liking him, to saying, my life, I'm looking to him, and I'm following him. 
And the answer, I think, is just in a very simple phrase of missional living. I see my life as one who is on mission. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, every Christian, not just some, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. If you are a Christian, you looked to Jesus, but the commitment was that you would follow Jesus, not like him and be a fan of his, but that you would follow him. And as you follow him, the promise was, I will make you a fisher of men. Jesus made really clear to his disciples after his resurrection. One of my favorite verses in the gospel of John is John chapter 20, verse 21. Again, he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. What I don't want anyone to be confused about is that we're just sending one person out of this community today to go and live their life on mission. If you're a Christian who's looked to Jesus and is following Jesus, you are one who is sent by God. You might not be going to an overseas context or different culture, but where you are is the very mission field that God has called you to. A sent one sees every aspect of their life, where they live, where they work, where they play, as an extension of their mission field. I want you to know where you work is not a coincidence. God has placed you there in this time, in this place, in this season to use you to be a blessing to those that you work with, to be a voice, to be an example of a follower of Christ, the neighborhood, the community that you live in. You're not there just because it was the only house available to you. I firmly believe God's planted you in that apartment complex, in that suburb, in that city, wherever you are, to be on mission in that very place. Looks to Jesus and follows Jesus. Now, Jesus made pretty clear what his mission was. And if Jesus was very clear on his mission, that means it's my mission also. In Luke 19, it just says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And I'll give you three things real quick of how do you actually live missionally? How do you live your life as one who's sent by God with a great message and a great mission? How can you wake up every single day and see your work, the people that you ride with on the, on the subway or the T or the bus, the person that you buy Starbucks from every day, how can you see every opportunity as an opportunity to engage that person with the gospel, to live as a sent one. And these are just three, and I think they'll be relatively memorable. Number one of how to live missionally is be a winsome person. I'm not sure if that's actually a word, but to be a winsome person, it has nothing to do with your personality. I'm a complete off-the-chart extrovert. I'll talk to anyone at any time in any place and love it. There are people who are like, I won't talk to anyone at any time in any place because I don't like it. Being winsome has nothing to do with being introverted or extroverted. Being a winsome person has to do, you're kind, you're generous. When you talk to people, when you see people, every conversation is an opportunity to plant a gospel seed in their life. So if you literally just have one opportunity to speak to a person and you're in line somewhere, I see that you have an opportunity to be winsome, that they will walk away from their one moment in time with you and they will have been blessed. 
and they maybe didn't hear anything from you, but they witnessed something because you are a winsome person. Number two is be invitational. Invite people into your life. We live very, generally speaking, I'm not saying everyone, but generally speaking, very closed lives. We don't want people coming into our stuff. We don't want people coming into our houses because they might mess it up. If you would be a missional person, one sent by God with a great message and a great mission, you will continually be inviting people into your space, into your life, into your home, wherever you are. You invite people there. One of the things, and don't take this wrong, invite people to come to church with you. And I don't say that so we can get these great big numbers. I say that I invite people to come to church because I trust God's going to use that in their life. And you know what else? I trust you. I'm excited for people to come and meet you. I have a friend who will remain nameless, but he's a, a friend at Staples. I am, I'm so excited for him to come here one day because he makes our bulletins. I'm excited for him to come here one day and meet the community that I brag to him about. I am excited to invite people into this space. And I don't mean the space here, but into the space of this community. Because I know that you would take care of him and you would love him. And he would walk out saying, wow, what an amazing group of people. I have that level of trust for you and I hope that you would have that level of trust for each of us. Invite people into your life. And the third one of being missional (laughs) is be vocal. There was a relatively famous monk who said, you know, preach the gospel, but use words only when you have to. And it's kind of a catchy way to think about it. You're like, huh, that's, that's clever. He's basically trying to say live a gospel-esque life. But the problem is there are too many people who are like, I'm just going to live it. I'm not going to say anything about it. I will never mention Jesus. I'll never talk about Jesus. I'll never talk about the good news. I'll just live it. And hopefully one day in my silence, someone will actually figure out who I am, what I believe, and why I believe it. If you would be one who is sent by God with a great message and mission, a sent one, you will be one who is very vocal with the gospel. I am not talking about being the man or the woman wearing a sandwich thing over you, uh, those sandwich uh, boards that just say turn or burn or you know, something like that. I'm not talking about being obnoxious because I said be winsome. But I am talking about being vocal with the gospel. And I know sometimes the thought is people don't care. They won't believe it. They'll fight me on it. They'll doubt it. And I came across this quote this week from Charles Spurgeon in response to, do I really believe that the gospel is powerful enough just to speak the gospel and let the gospel be? Spurgeon said this, the gospel does not need defending. If Jesus Christ is not alive and cannot fight his own battles, then Christianity is in a really bad state. He goes on to say, but he is alive and we have only to preach his gospel in all its naked simplicity and the power that goes with it will be the evidence of his divinity. We're not just called to model the gospel in how we live and be hands and feet and heart and mind of Jesus. God gave you a voice and he's given you an incredible message to preach, to proclaim that message to those that are around you. Again, not in an obnoxious way, but in a winsome way. The obvious 
I think next question is, well, what do I tell people? It's safe to say not anyone in here has it all figured out. I don't know everything, and neither do you. So what do I ultimately tell people? And these two things are very helpful to me to remember when I'm having conversations, if I've only got that three-minute window or if I'm trying to build a conversation. I tell them this. I tell them what I know, and I tell them what he's done. I don't act as if I have it all figured out and I know everything. I tell them what I know, and I tell them what he's done. D.L. Moody said it like this. I do not know anything that would wake up Chicago. This is where D.L. Moody uh, ministry was based out of largely. I do not know anything that would wake up Chicago better than for every man and woman here who loves him, being Jesus, to begin to talk about him to their friends and just to tell them what he has done for you. You have got a circle of friends. Go and tell them of him. We all have an incredible circle of friends. Some are digital friends, and some are actually real friends. Whether they're digital or whether they're real, tell them, this is what I know, and this is what he's done. Well, what about this? Well, I don't know about that, but I'll, I'll go ask. I'll learn because I'm growing. I'm looking to him and I'm following him. Lastly, we'll finish this with this one. A life found or a life kept looks to Jesus, follows Jesus, and thirdly, if you've picked up already, serves Jesus. John chapter 12, verse 26. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Serving and following are so close together. But there is one difference I want to highlight, the difference between serving and following Jesus. Following has so much to do with our position, where I position myself with Jesus. I'm following him. I'm imitating him. But serving Jesus has more to do with my posture, that I've taken the position or the posture of a servant. Here's a question. Are you a servant or are you one who serves? There's a difference. Are you a servant or are you one who serves? The difference being servants are always serving because that's who they are. That's that's what I do. I'm a servant. But those who serve only serve When they can. It just kind of depends on the situation. I'll read the verse again. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant, my servant also will be. I don't want there to be a confusion in our church what God is calling us towards. He's not calling us towards serving. He's calling us towards being servants. And if you're a servant, you'll serve, because that's who you are and that's what you do. We're not inviting people just to serve on occasion. We're hoping to create a culture where people are learning to be servants. And the beautiful thing about if you just, what does it ultimately mean to be a servant? If you're looking to Jesus and if you're following Jesus, then you'll know exactly what it means to be a servant in that you live sacrificially. Servants sacrifice. They sacrifice of themselves. They sacrifice of their time, of their resources, of their talents, whatever it might be that God would use what you're sacrificing to be a blessing to someone else. 
that he would use what you're sacrificing of yourself, your time, talents, treasures, whatever they might be, to use that someone might come to know who Jesus is. There's a great threat, though, to servants. (laughs) I've got one word of, I think, what the greatest threat to being a servant of God is, and it starts with an S. It's called selfishness. Selfishness defeats being a servant all the time. If you truly want to be a servant, not just someone who serves, one of the things that you pray into and repent of, God, beat this selfishness out of me. I love how C.S. Lewis said it. At this very moment, this is in his book, The Problem of Pain, at this very moment, you and I are either committing selfishness, about to commit it, or you're repenting of it. There's two. You're either on the committing it right now, you're getting ready to, or you've identified those and you say, no, I'm repenting of being selfish because I'm a servant. I'm not one who serves self, and that's what it means to be selfish is you're self-serving because I am a servant. Again, there's so much that could be said about this this passage, but I love the paradox that Jesus presents here. You will either love your life, and if you're that person who loves their life, they will be the ones who lose or destroy. But if you're the one who makes the decision to say, you know what? My life is not about me. I'm not running the show. It's not, I'm not the king of my small world. I've already confessed Jesus. I've looked to him for life. I'm following him on his mess, with his message and with his mission. And I am a servant. And I love the promise at the end of verse 26, where it just clearly, where uh, Jesus says, my father will honor the one who serves me. I don't know about you, but I want to live a life where God says, it's a life I honor. Where he looks to our life And he's not impressed where I can somehow get more from God because he's already given me everything in a son. But Jesus says to those who are servants, this is the life that God honors. Two choices. Either you're going to love your life to the point of losing it or destroying it, or you will be the one who says, it's just not about me. And if you will be the one who lives a life found or a life kept, You're the one who's looked to Jesus for life. You're following Jesus in life and you're not confused about who you're a servant of and it's not you, it's God. As you're here today, which life have you chosen? Which one are you? Are you loving your life so much where if you just stop for a moment, you'd say, you know what? I'm actually destroying the the life I'm trying to, to find. If that's you, stop where you are today and say, wow, I need to look to Jesus for life. I need to follow him and become a servant of God, not a servant of self. And if you already made this decision, you're looking to Jesus, you're following Jesus, and you're a servant of God. I wanted to share one last prayer. This is a prayer that uh, Charles Spurgeon, towards the end of his uh, life, this was a prayer that he prayed often. The prayer is this. I have now concentrated all my prayers into one. 
And that one prayer is this, that I may die to self and live holy to him. If you're a Christian, let this be a prayer that's prayed every day, that I may die to self and live holy to him, looking to him, following him, and a servant of him. 